If you have your Bibles and would like to follow along, please turn to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 4, as we are studying the event of the Exodus in Scripture. We are in chapter 4. This morning I'll read verses 18 through 31, and I will preface it by saying that in my studying and reviewing commentaries and researching this, I've uh, realized two things which have been stated explicitly in many of the commentaries I read. One is that in these verses is one of the most difficult doctrines in all of Scripture. And the other is that in these verses we also have one of the strangest stories in all of Scripture. So let's, let's have fun with that today. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus 4, beginning in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let you go. He will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had, been, which, with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Though I dearly love uh, listening to and playing classical music, I have never had much patience for operas. Sadly, it's like the only thing on on Saturday afternoon on my classic music station. But what I do like about operas is the overture. See, the overture is where they take all the major musical themes and smash them together into one instrumental piece at the beginning of the opera, so you kind of hear how the whole thing's going to go. It's like a greatest hits of the whole hour or two or three ahead of you. It's like if you've ever watched The Wizard of Oz, back when they used to have the credits at the beginning of the movie, you know, they'll play like all the songs from the whole movie, just snippets of them at the beginning in the, the overture. And it's to give you an idea, to give you hints and, and ideas and foreshadowing of the music to come. And you may not know before you see the movie or the opera or whatever what that musical theme is going to be all about, but you get an idea of what's coming up. And I would suggest that something very similar is happening here. As Moses sets out on this journey, as he secure, as you know, the Lord has called him through the burning bush to go and, and speak to Pharaoh and call for the people of Israel to be delivered, uh, 
he sets out in obedience to the Lord's command finally, after some fussing and arguing and complaining, as we saw last week. He's finally obeying, and he's on his way. And in this journey towards the deliverance of God's people, we see laid out the, the main themes that are going to be true of the deliverance of God's people. We're going to follow that journey that begins with a hard heart where the disobedience of Pharaoh leads him into danger. And it ends with the rejoicing and celebration of God's people. And we're going to see how at every stage of the journey, God's hands are at work to reveal himself to his people as the one who is mighty to save. To show that even though our disobedience and our stubborn hard hearts would deserve death, he has provided salvation and for that we worship him. So this morning as we see the journey of deliverance set out in this overture, let us prepare our hearts even to receive the Lord's Supper that we will celebrate today, which communicates in tangible form the very salvation and deliverance that we see written here. The first stage of this journey that we see shows us that our disobedience leads to danger. Our disobedience leads to danger. Following on the encounter at the burning bush, if you've been with us the past three weeks, you see the recurring theme of God displaying His power. He's showing Moses how powerful he is and giving him these amazing signs and miracles to perform before Pharaoh. A, a staff that's going to turn into a serpent. A, a hand that becomes diseased with leprosy and then is immediately healed. Water from the Nile that will turn into blood before their very eyes. So God is sending Moses to Pharaoh not only with a message, with a command, but also with a display of power. To, to communicate that he has the authority to make these commands. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. And yet despite these displays, these shows of God's power over nature, Pharaoh will not listen. Verse 21 goes on to say, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That is a fascinating and troubling sentence. God says, Pharaoh won't listen to you because I am going to make his heart hard. Yikes. If we hold a view of mankind that says either that we are naturally good, that that is our default state, or even if we believe that mankind is naturally neutral, then a view that says that God hardens someone's heart so that they disobey and then get punished for their disobedience is a terrifying and morally repugnant idea. If we start out good and God forces us to do evil and then punishes us for it, that is atrocious. But that's not what it says. Because that's not where we start. So we need to take a deeper dive into this doctrine to understand. Uh, a hard heart, kids, if you're following along, a hard heart is a phrase we use to describe someone who, who will not listen and, and who is disobedient, who insists on doing things their own way and not listening to someone who tells them what they should do. So first of all, in Exodus, this, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is described in three different ways. First of all, like here and in, I think, 9.12 is the verse I have on the screens, it says that the Lord is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, you'll see it in 7.3, 10, 10.20, 10.20. Over and over, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to be the one to do it. 
But then we have mixed in with that, we have other verses such as 832, 815, 934, and a few others where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then, just in case that wasn't confusing enough, we have other verses like 713, which says Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen without telling us who did the hardening of his heart. So in the end, who's doing it? Is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Or is it just kind of happening somehow and nobody is responsible for it? Well, it all depends on how we understand the default position of our hearts. You ever, um, your phones, your, all your devices have default factory settings. What the brightness is, what the ringtone is, how big the, the letters are, you know, how, it, how big the buttons are when you're trying to type all those letters. And, and you, you work to get it just the way you want it to be. You change the settings. And then something happens and it resets itself to the default settings. And suddenly it's like it's not your phone anymore. You don't even know how it works. It's making weird noises and it doesn't look right. It's gone back to its default settings, its factory settings. Well, Scripture says something about our default settings, our factory settings in Romans 3. In Romans 3, Paul is listing out all these verses that Scripture gives saying, what is our default setting? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they've not known. They have no fear of God before their eyes. That's bleak. And that, according to Scripture, is our default state. That's how we naturally are. Ever since Adam and Eve began the rebellion against God in the garden, all of their progeny, all their offspring, every human is born with that default setting. Save for Jesus Christ. Left to our own devices, we always slide inevitably towards evil. Hard heart is our natural state. But people aren't always that way. Okay, I, I anticipate that objection and I agree with it. We don't go out there and just see mass chaos as everybody just killing each other and stealing and burning the place down. I mean, some places you'll see that. But generally, that's not how people are. We see people who have no belief in Christ doing good and wonderful things. And they're kind and they are helpful and they're good people and we want to be their friends. We're not that way always. What Scripture shows is that when anyone is not acting out the fullness of their sin, when anyone is not being the evil person that they naturally are, it is God working graciously in their life. The word for that in theology is common grace. That God spreads His grace abroad, causing the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, causing the rain to fall on the good and the evil, causing even bad people to do good things, causing people who don't believe in Him to act according to His ways. It's a grace that God shows to all people, keeping us from being as bad as our nature leads us to be. It's described in Scripture in many places, including Ezekiel 11, where God says, I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, that hard heart, from their flesh, and I will give them a, a soft heart, a heart made of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. 
Think of it this way. The natural state of my yard is weediness. Okay? Left to its own, it's just going to grow weeds. In between every crack along every pathway, everywhere there's going to be weeds. Unless I step in and do something, if I use a spray or if I pull the weeds up or I plant a stronger natural grass to overtake the weeds, there's lots of things I can do to keep my yard from doing what it naturally wants to do. But if I want my yard to become weedy, all I have to do is withhold my hand and not intervene and let it do what it naturally will do. So when Exodus tells us, on the one hand, that God will harden Pharaoh's heart, and likewise that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, we need to understand the natural default setting of the human heart is disobedience. It is sin. It is death. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you used to walk. In our assurance of pardon, we saw the exact same thing expressed. You were dead in your trespasses naturally. So for God to harden Pharaoh's heart, he doesn't need to take a heart that is naturally good and reshape it into something evil. He just withholds his grace and doesn't get in the way and lets Pharaoh do what he naturally is disposed to do. Now it would be easy for us to say, perhaps even with confidence, that we would be different. But we were wrong if we said that. We should not look down on Pharaoh for not believing or for the Israelites in the desert who after seeing, after walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and seeing food fall from the sky each day to feed them, to see water come from the rock and then to still question and doubt and disbelieve God. And we say, we would have been different. We would have believed God. Or the, those who walked with Jesus and saw His miracles, saw Him heal the sick, raise the dead, cure the blind, turn water into wine, and then did not believe that He was the Son of God. And we say, I would have been different. And we are wrong. We are deceived if we say that. We should not be so quick and so arrogant as to claim that we are better than those who do not believe that we would have responded differently because even our faith is a gift from God. Without His gracious gift, we would be just as stubborn. We would be just as unbelieving. And that is why when we share the gospel, we often mention Ephesians 2, chapter 8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And brothers and sisters, that is not your own doing. That is a gift of God that you, are, that you believe at all to begin with. That you have faith. That you are not hardened in your heart just as Pharaoh was is a gift of God. And what happens to someone such as Pharaoh who continues to disobey God's commands? That disobedience leads to danger. Verse 22 you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. When the Lord calls Israel firstborn, He's, he's identifying them of all the peoples in the world as a privileged, as an honored people. To Pharaoh they were slaves and servants, but to Yahweh the Lord they are His, his precious ones. And if Pharaoh disregards the precious one of the Lord, then he will face dire consequences 
it's, it's hard to miss the comparison that those who, who reject the Son of God will likewise themselves be rejected by God. When we sin, just as Pharaoh did, we reject God, we become His enemy, and God in the end will destroy His enemies. As we say famously with Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. So that's the first stage of this journey of deliverance, this overture of what God is going to do, is to say, look, it begins with hard hearts that deserve my wrath. And Pharaoh, if you will not listen you will be punished. But the crazy thing is, as the journey goes on, in the next strange encounter, Moses also faces a death sentence from God. Moses, not just Pharaoh. Moses likewise, because of his sin, is in mortal danger. And yet, in this next stage of the journey, God reveals the theme, the next theme of the song, how he provides a sacrifice that will save his own. So while we see at the beginning of the journey that, the, that our disobedience leads to danger, the next thing is that the son's sacrifice leads to salvation. Verse 24, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Him probably being Moses here. Now wait a minute. Why would the Lord, who, who called Moses... And told him to do this, why would the Lord suddenly be coming out to kill Moses? Isn't Moses obeying? Isn't he on a path of obedience? Sure, he was fussing and fighting about it earlier and resisting and trying to find somebody else to do it. But in the end, he capitulated. He's going along with God's plan. And now God's going to kill him? What? It, it's Think of it this way. If you've ever seen kids running around the house and they knock over something, like I don't know if people still have vases, for some reason, all my years of cartoons and sitcoms, I'm picturing a, a Ming vase just getting knocked over and shattering into pieces. Or maybe it's a picture frame or something that, that the kids through playing, they knock over and it falls to the ground and just shatters. And the kid says, I'll be more careful next time. Okay, sure, but that doesn't fix what's broken. And though Moses is on a path of obedience now, there is yet a disobedience for which he is under a death sentence from the Lord. And what we'll see here is that even our best obedience isn't enough to make up for our sin. Even if you're good from here on out, there is a fundamental disobedience before God that must be resolved. And only by a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, can we be saved. So at this next stage in the journey, we see that the son's sacrifice leads to salvation. I think these next verses will make everything crystal clear in your minds. Verses 25 and 26. Then Zipporah, yeah, you know it's not. <laughs> Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All clear, right? Okay, let's move a little deeper. We have to go back in the history of God's people. When God first called Abraham and made a covenant with him, he made a covenant to, to give Abraham's offspring the land of Canaan, the promised land. He made a promise, a covenant, to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars. 
He made a promise to bless Abraham and make him a blessing to the nations. He made a promise to be with Abraham and protect him and guard him and his descendants. And then in Genesis 17, he said, here's how you sign up for my covenant. Here's how you declare yourself a part of this covenant. Genesis 17, he said, This is my covenant, Abraham, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, which are the Israelites in Egypt. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, for whatever reason, Moses had not had his son circumcised, and therefore Moses had put his household under this situation of being cut off from the covenant of God. And apart from the promises of God, the covenant of God, there is no salvation, there is no security, there is no peace. To fail to, to declare himself a part of the covenant and obey the commands of that covenant would be to cut, be cut off from God's people. It didn't matter that Moses was doing something good, even that he was doing what God commanded. Because either by intent or negligence, he had separated himself and his family from the blessings and the promises of the covenant. And Zipporah, being a wise and proactive wife, recognizes the problem, sees what needs to be done, and fixes it quickly. Only by the blood of the covenant the sign of the covenant, can Moses' disobedience be covered and his life saved? Now, it might be a little uncomfortable that we need to dig a little bit deeper here, but we have to talk a little bit more about what circumcision teaches us. Because circumcision is a cutting off and a shedding of blood. Even in the time of Abraham, God was giving his people a sign, a pointer to something bigger that would be their salvation. A time when circumcision would be no longer needed because of the one that circumcision pointed us to, which is Christ. One who would be cut off from His people and forsaken by God. As Isaiah 53 describes Jesus, He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of His people. Those who broke the covenant would have been cut off from their people, God said in Genesis 17, until the one came, in Isaiah 53 says, the one who would himself be cut off on their behalf, who would take that rejection on himself and be cut off from his people. Circumcision also points us to Jesus, whose blood keeps God's covenant and forgives our sins, as we're going to hear when we receive and celebrate the Lord's Supper. When Jesus was establishing the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, when Moses was under a sentence of death, Zipporah shed her son's blood that Moses might be saved. But when we were under the curse of sin and facing death, God shed the blood of His own Son that we might be saved. So the warning of God to the disobedient as God readies to strike the death blow, the rejected firstborn of God, the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ, rejected by man, He it is who is cut off. He it is who shed His blood with the result that those who should have been struck down are instead accepted. Those who should have been cut off are given new life. 
because the Son of God, the true bridegroom of the church, the bridegroom of blood, the bridegroom who gave His blood for His people, He shed His blood to save His people. There is no obedience that can take the place of that. There is no amount of good deeds. There is no gift you can give, no rules you can follow, no life you can live that can take the place of the bridegroom of blood, the Son whose blood is shed that those under the curse may live. It's the Son's sacrifice or it is nothing, as we already sang this morning. Jesus, it's your blood. It's your righteousness that are my beauty and my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy will I lift up my head. Not with my own obedience. Not with my own good doctrine. Not with my passionate tears during worship. None of that makes up for the rebellion, the disobedience that puts us in danger. It's the Son's sacrifice, the blood of Christ only. The themes of salvation are that the disobedience, our disobedience leads us to danger, but the Son's sacrifice leads us to salvation. And the last stage of the journey, we see that God's promise leads to praise. Moses continues, having been saved by the covenant sacrifice, Moses continues on the path God set before him. He meets up with Aaron, just as God had told him he would. He tells Aaron all that's going on, and Aaron agrees, just as God said he would. And then in verse 29-31, through 31, Moses and Aaron gather the elders of the people of Israel together. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. They did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. So, to begin with, they're telling the elders not all the Israelites uh, for two reasons. One, together, all the Israelites together, you know, all million of them, as the numbers were, might have raised some suspicions in Egypt and it would have been logistically very impractical. But also the elders were the, the leaders of the community. And if the elders were persuaded, then the people would go as the elders led them to. And so Moses and Aaron gather the elders and they share the words of the Lord and they show them the signs and lo and behold, just as God had said, they listened. Look at Exodus 3.16. God had said that you, he would gather the elders of Israel together and they will listen to your voice, Moses. And remember, Moses was like, they're not going to listen, they're not going to listen. And God said, no, they, they will listen to your voice, Moses. And, and that's significant. When we read that they did in fact listen because it's showing that exactly what God had said would take place is actually taking place. If God had said the elders and the people will listen, and now they're listening, what do you think, Moses, is going to happen when you go to Pharaoh? Is it not going to play out exactly the way God told you it would? And likewise for us, as we look at the promises that God has already fulfilled, does that not encourage us when we look at the promises He has yet to fulfill? When we look at what He's done in Christ, how He has given His Son to forgive our sins, how Christ has risen from the dead just as He promised He would, does that not encourage us that all the things that we have yet to see take place are right on track? It should encourage us to think of that. The fulfilled promises of God give us hope in the future promises of God. But now look at the message that they listened to, the message that Moses and Aaron shared again in Exodus 3.16, the message the Lord had told them, go gather the elders of Israel together and say that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, 
I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. So they brought this message of deliverance, but had it taken place yet? No. And that's, that's really important. We're going to hang out there for a, a little bit. The message was of a deliverance yet to come. And how did the people of Israel, still in slavery in Egypt, respond to a message of deliverance that they had not yet received? In verse 31, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and heard that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. First they believed, and then they worshipped. They believed a message of something that hadn't yet happened. And because of that message of a salvation that was still on the horizon, they worshipped. I want you to stop and consider that. That worship is not only for what God has done. Worship is also fitting for what God will yet do. It, it's right and it's good and probably a lot easier to praise God for the things that He has already done. For the things that He has done in my life that I can testify about and I can praise Him for that. For the ways that I've seen His hands at work. The ways that He has kept His promises in Jesus Christ. Yes, we can and should praise God for that. But it is also right and fitting for us to praise God and to worship Him for what He has promised to do for the salvation that is yet on the horizon. In Christ, you already have forgiveness, adoption, justification, empowerment. These are completed things. These are ongoing things. We praise God for what He has done, but His work isn't done. And we yet have a message of salvation yet to come. Something we need to look forward to and that we need to worship God for. In Hebrews 9, the author puts it this way, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, that's the past salvation, that's happened. He has done that already. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the salvation yet to come. There are aspects of your salvation that you haven't experienced yet. You are still struggling with temptations and sins. You are still seeing fallenness in this world. You are still seeing nation at war with nation. You are still seeing loved ones succumb to sickness and death. You are still seeing friends and loved ones that will not talk to each other because of sin and brokenness. Salvation is not yet complete. And like the elders of Israel, we are to believe the promises of God that He will do what He says He will do. And we can praise Him for it as if it's already taking place. So when we worship God for what He's promised to do, we show that, that we trust Him to be faithful to those words. Our worship becomes an act and an expression of our faith. Not just a declaration of the marvelous deeds of the Lord in the past, but a declaration of here's what He's going to do. How great is He for what He's going to do? I don't know if you noticed or not, but like so many of the things we've already sung about today... We're of things that God will yet do, and we are praising Him for it. It's like somebody I'd heard of once who, who was scheduled for hip surgery, and they, they signed up for dance lessons for like two months after their surgery because the doctor said, 
you're, yeah, you, you'll be able to dance again. You'll, it'll be like new. And they said, all right, I'm going to take, I can't dance yet, but I'll take your word for it. And I'm going to sign myself up for the dance lessons because I believe that what you said is ha- going to happen is going to happen. Or somebody putting a deposit on something they can't afford because they've been promised that they're going to receive a gift to pay for the rest of it. They believe the promise and so they take action. They say, I don't look at this as if it's just words and I'm going to wait and see. I believe that what you've said will be true will be true. And I will worship God for it. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to learn from the Israelites in bondage in Egypt who are we're in far worse circumstances than in most of us ever will be if you struggle to praise God, if you struggle to worship. And, and it's okay to admit that worship is not always easy. There's times where the person next to you is singing and happy and, and maybe even have their hands up in, in, in worship and you're just like, eh, I'm just not feeling it. I'm sorry. It's, it's been a hard week. It's been a hard year. It's been a hard decade. And I just don't feel it. I would urge you to do what the Israelites did and to look ahead. Yes, God is still worthy to be worshipped and praised regardless of our circumstances. And there are many things for which we could praise Him. But look ahead to what He has promised if you can do nothing else. That He will do what He has said He will do. Look ahead at the reality that is guaranteed in Christ. Look, I have no concluding story no cute illustration i just want to seal this in your minds even as we have two more songs to sing this this afternoon during during our lord's supper and after it i want you to look at the lyrics and notice the times that we are singing and praising god for what is yet to come the salvation that is on the horizon even our call to worship and i'm going to close with this our call to worship this morning through which we, through Scripture, we're called into worship God. That call to worship is meant to turn our focus, to turn our eyes away from self, away from frustration, away from the present, and into the reality that God has put before us. And so listen to the words that called you into worship this morning from Isaiah 42, speaking of Christ. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. He's going to do this. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, it hasn't happened yet. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And how do God's people respond? Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. People of God, that is the story of deliverance that it begins with hardened hearts that are in danger because of their disobedience, but yet the covenantal sacrifice of the Son through His blood, there is salvation and nowhere else. And as we see that and look forward to how it's carried out, it leads God's people to praise. With that in mind, let us prepare our hearts in prayer to receive and to celebrate the Lord's Supper.